It's impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In a typical episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I will be talking with Henrik Zetterberg-Nielsen, who has selected Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Henrik Zetterberg-Nielsen is Professor of Communication and Culture at Aarhus University in Denmark. I first became aware of Henrik's ability to think in new and fresh ways about narrative and narrative theory in 2003 when he submitted to Narrative the essay that became The Impersonal Voice in First-Person Narrative Fiction. Since that time, Henrik has published widely in both Danish and English and has made his mark in numerous subfields of narrative theory, including unnatural narrative and unnatural narratology, rhetorical narratology, and fictionality studies. Henrik's most recent works in English are the co-edited collections, Fictionality and Literature, Core Concepts Revisited, 2022, and Dangers of Fictionality and Narrative, a rhetorical approach to storytelling in contemporary Western culture, coming later this year. Henrik is currently working on several projects, including a study of the interrelations of fictionality and sexuality. Henrik, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners before you read Pose the Telltale Heart? Yes, Jim. Thank you so much for, for the welcome and, and thanks for inviting me to the podcast. It's amazing to to follow in the in the long line of very distinguished narrative scholars. So so thank you so much for including me here. And also I'd like to extend that thank you for to you to for everything you've done to our scholarly community and, and for so many persons and academics who have really moved the fields of narrative theory and, and literary studies in, in tremendous ways. So so thanks for that. Thank you. Well, let's get get to the story. Let's get to the story. Right, right. And a little bit of context. So two things I want to mention as a context. So one one thing is that this story, The Telltale Heart, published first time in 1843 in the the very first edition of the journal The Pioneer. And I'll be reading from this first edition because the story is somewhat changed in later editions following Griswold's kind of infamous revisions after Poe's death. And it has a very close connection, The Telltale Heart, to two other short stories by Poe, The Black Cat, which you talked to Faye Halpern about in episode 17, and The Imp of the Perverse, in the sense that in each of these three stories, in each instance, a murder is committed by what seems like a maniac, and we can interpret in what sense that that word would apply. And in all three texts, that murderer is completely safe and has concealed the murder very well, so there's no chance that he will be accused of of murder, let alone convicted, unless he himself confesses to the crimes kind of against his own will. And then in each instance, this is exactly what happens. So so already that kind of connection between the text leads us to questions not only concerning the murder in itself, but also what does it mean to have an intention and a will and to do something against your own will. So so that's one thing maybe to listen for. And and, and more specifically, to listen... um, I would invite listeners who, who want to do so to kind of take notice uh, of how uh, much effort is put into by, by Poe and the character narrator 
to make sure that we understand that the character narrator has nothing against the old man whom he confesses to, to murdering. How many times that is repeated and how it is repeated again and again, how instead what vexes him is the old man's eye, his mm. evil eye, the evil eye. And also, as a final thing, if listeners want to, they can pay attention to the rhythm created by the repetitions in the text, especially towards the end. Okay. All right. That's great. So thank you. Now here's Henrik Zetterberg Nielsen reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Thank you very much. The Telltale Heart, and, and in this edition, it is accompanied by a short epigraph by Longfellow, which goes like this. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches to the grave. And then follows Poe's tale. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I'm mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? I can and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It's impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I first put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see the old man as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into his chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him, him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So, you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night just at twelve I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night, night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. 
to think that there I was opening the door little by little and the old man not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. And perhaps the old man heard me, for he moved in the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with a thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept on pushing it steadily, steadily. I had got my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in the bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For another hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear the old man lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew that it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh, no. It was a low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has swelled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it's nothing but the wind in the chimney, it's only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death in approaching the old man had stalked with his black shadow before him, and the shadow had now reached and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard me, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited for a long time, very patiently, without hearing the old man lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray like the thread of the spider shut from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow of my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now... Have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as the watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates a soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed, breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do mark me well. I have told you that I'm nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of night and amid the dreadful silence of that old house, 
so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable breath. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and kept still, but the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then sat upon the bed and smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the walls. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. The old man was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boss so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A top had caught it all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. A suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been de deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasure, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things, but ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wisdom gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. 
I swung the, pan, the chair upon which I had sat and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose all over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard. They suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything better than this agony, anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again, hack, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, as you said, this is a kind of a, you know, Poe tale that we, has become familiar. He's, you know, when we think about Poe, we think about this story and, you know, this kind of unreliable narrator and the horror and guilt and these kinds of things. And here, as you were saying, you know, maybe a kind of inadvertent confession. So maybe we could just begin by going through that kind of typical understanding of the story and what Poe's up to. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Like you say, I think this is the typical understanding, and 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 also that it makes a lot of sense. It is a tale of, of horror and of dismemberment and and blood, even yeah. if it leaves no no stain. But 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 it's a gruesome uh, story yeah. about about uh, a character narrator confessing to murdering a, an old man, and like you said, he seems in several respects unreliable and and somewhat like a like a madman. And also, it seems to make sense that he's mad in the sense that he doesn't even really know why he wants to get rid of the old man, but he has this very, very strong antipathy against him and, and then murders and, and dismembers him. And then, of course, the question for the reader is the question already raised by the title and Telltale Heart, what role does the heart play and is yeah, there yeah. a sound in, anywhere? Because the policemen seem very clear to, to not hear anything and not notice anything. Yeah. So what are we to, to make of what we're told by the title? Is, is the heart really telling anything, giving anything away or not? And one quite plausible and fairly, I think, typical interpretation is that obviously if the old man is stone dead, yeah, his yeah. heart is not beating. Yeah. Maybe the character narrator is feeling so much guilt and anxiety right, that right. his own heart is beating fast and so he perceives of his his own heart and and this is why he, he can kind of hear it and and perceive of it whereas obviously someone external to him like like the policeman cannot so 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 it's like an overflow of emotion for yeah. him and and that kind of leads him guilt-ridden as as he is <laughs> allegedly in in this interpretation to confess out of pure pure guilt and and, yeah. and emotion right um, yeah, right and i think that's that's definitely a level that's definitely in the story yes yeah, yeah. and i think uh, you know just to maybe another layer of that which is i think also something that we want to develop a little bit more as we go is the nature of the narration right so that one of the things that stands out is that he's not defending himself for having committed this murder what he seems to be concerned about is you know, I'm not mad. Don't think I'm mad. I'm not a bad right. man, right? And look at all these you know, things I've done. And there's it's a sort of an odd uh, relationship between his relationship to the potential accusation or the actual accusation that he's mad, which he's very concerned with, as opposed to, well, you committed a murder, which he's, you know, in right. a way, is initially kind of boasting about how, how well he did right. it and so on. 
Yeah, I think that that is a great point and an important point, and also a point that that might move us towards other possibilities. Yeah. Because you began to introduce the story constructed in a a peculiar way where we have a a frame in the the beginning, which is a bit unspecified. We don't know if it is an interrogation room with police officers or or something else. But if we think of it as him being (laughs) indicted and and questioned by police, like you say, then it's strange that he's not, he's neither saying, okay, I didn't commit the murder or saying, okay, so I confessed in this situation to the murder. Instead, he's defending himself, exactly like you say, against a different accusation, right, right. an accusation of madness. And he's doing that in his monologue, but including in the monologue, a kind of a, an imagined dialogue. Why will you say that I'm mad? So exactly. He's yeah. imagining some, someone accusing him, him of madness. Yeah. And then, I mean, one thing then when we think about the progression towards the end, it's almost like he's lost it all, right? He's not, he's sort of immersed himself back into the moment of hearing the heart again, right? And that's sort of what takes over the narration, right? He's no longer defending, he's kind of reliving as he retells. And here's another way in which we could maybe come back to the idea of the title and the heart tale that the heart is telling, right? As he hears the beating of the heart, that becomes the climax of his tale, his hearing. And so it does become, you know, the title seems to be very apt in that way. Yeah, exactly. Like like you say, the time of the telling and the time of the toll are kind of mixed together in in a way that they become almost indistinguishable towards the end. Is this what he's feeling now or what he felt then or both? Or both he says, yeah. what's the end? This I thought and this I think. Yes. And then he switches to the, to the preterite tense. So, so like you say, he seems to be either reliving it or or, or, or immersing himself Self. and maybe the readers as well into right. that situation. Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. All right. So this is a good, a good way to start. I think we could sort of go further with some of these points that sort of flesh out this kind of typical reading. But I know you're you're interested in other readings too, right? Other other ways of sort of configuring some of the details of the story. So, you want to maybe start start down that road, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that that, that this is not the true reading, and, and I'm going to present <laughs> yeah, a true yeah. reading. But I'm I'm just trying to suggest that some things remain quite quite indeterminate. Okay. And I think at least another possible reading casts into doubt whether or not the old man even exists, and especially yeah. whether or not a murder is even committed. And I can start that line of reasoning by referring to the many many instances which I also pointed to in the beginning, mm-hmm. where he kind of tries to make very sure that the reader understands that it's not about the old man; yeah. it's about as he says, I wanted to rid myself of the eye forever. Yeah. And rid, rid myself of the evil eye. And when, yeah, he when even hear, says, I love the old man, right? I mean, yeah, so yeah, like... Yeah. Yeah. And when you hear something like his evil eye or the evil yeah. eye, it it, it, it it seems to include the possibility that it's not only about a visual <laughs> organ uh, for seeing, but yeah. also about an evil part of oneself, uh, an evil kind of subjectivity. And if that was the case, it, it would entail Poe playing uh, around with, with homonyms in the text. Uh-huh. Now, now homonyms are, are words which sound the same, but mean different things. So, so right. for instance, right. the word two is a homonym because it means the number between one and three. And it also means also. So right. we can say two and then it can mean two different things. It also means that homonyms are, are words where hearing tells you one thing, but seeing them yeah. tells you an, 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 another thing. 
And, and it seems to me that it's at least a, a, a possibility included in, in Poe's use of, of I and of evil eye that he wants listeners and readers to understand that it's, it's, it's both about a visual organ, mm-hmm. but it's also about uh, the eye himself. And then if we think that uh, the story is also about wanting to rid yourself of, of, of some kind of subjectivity or self or control, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it turns out, uh, I think, fairly quickly that, it, that it's actually uh, fairly uh, difficult to distinguish between the eye and the old man because they seem to share almost every quality and every description. What the old man is thinking, says the character narrator, is what I'm thinking myself yeah. at night. The terrors he feels are the terrors I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, in that regard, I mean, I think one of the things that stands out is that all the attribution of thoughts that he gives to the old man on the eighth night, right? That right. he's trying to reassure himself, et cetera, et cetera. It's, talk about my own relationship to him. I was like, well, you don't know that. How do you know that? But he's so convinced that he that he can accurately report what's going on in the old man's head. Yes. So, so if we say that, that at least one possible explanation of that is that these are actually his own thoughts, yeah. which he then attributes to the old man. Yeah. Then, then we also see that that actually mirrors even a very realistic and naturalistic explanation about his heart. Because if we say in, in a very naturalistic uh-huh. reading of the text that, oh, but obviously it's not about the old man's, oh, no. heart, old man's heart talking. It's about him confusing his own heart's beating for the old man's. Then that's actually the same figure that, that he kind of redoubles what he feels himself and attributes right. to the old man. Right. And it seems very possible that that happens again and again. Also, the text makes it very clear that he jumps into the room with a loud yell, and then he says that about the old man, he, he freaks shrieked, out. Right. And so, so we have very definitively two two loud yells. Yeah. But then when the policemen come, they say that one shriek had been reported. Right. So, so again, that could be explained if, if he continuously kind of re- redoubles what, what comes fr- from himself. Right, right. And I think another thing that's kind of an interesting detail of the story in terms of like sustaining this reading of the I being the character narrator or, you know, it's his own relationship to himself that's at, at issue, this would, exp- would also go along with the idea that we don't know the occasion of the telling. If, if we were to definitively you know, indicate that, okay, the character narrator is being interrogated by police after they found the body, then this reading is sort of blocked in a way that that it's not yeah. when we when Poe right. po leaves that indeterminate, as you say. Right. And actually, what you said just before yourself, that he's explicitly defending himself against accusation of madness and right. not against accusation of murder, right. would seem to suggest that it's even more plausible that that he's maybe in an asylum or, or something be, yeah. being questioned than in a police office in in an interrogation. Yeah. And again, in a very in a sense down to earth <laughs> fashion, it would make a lot of sense if we say, okay, so there was never an old man present, but the policeman arrived to the place because of the, of the yelling. Yelling, right? And, and, and then and then with no one else present, he begins raving about. Right. And, and talking about dismemberments and corpses. And at least I have the strong feeling that when when they tear up the planks, as he invites them to, they're going to, fi- to find nothing. nothing. Right, right. And, and that would be the case. Then it would be very possible that they would say to him, well, you're mad. Yes, <laughs> right. There's, there's no corpse. And I think also other details kind of point us a little bit in that direction. 
for example, the method of the murder, which seems to me extremely vague because yeah. he says, so I threw him under the bed and then I sat upon the bed. Right, right. Uh, and it's first, first time I've ever heard of that kind of murder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. uh, right. It's, it's not going to be in the, the manual for murder for dummies, how to commit a murder, right? You put a bed on top of somebody and sit on it, right? No, no, that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and also, I mean, I know that that he says that he caught all of the blood in in a tub, so that's kind of an explanation. Yeah. But so it seems that that as soon as the alleged murder is allegedly committed, the old man kind of evaporates completely yeah. out of the text. So he doesn't even leave a stain or anything. Yeah, yeah, um, right, right. So so yeah. I, I think a lot of details cast doubt yeah. upon whether, yeah. whether or not yeah. murder yeah. actually happened. Right, and just to go again with the idea of them, you know, the police, well, how are they going to react, right? The, the final lines there, right? He yells at them, villains, right? Dissemble no more. Uh, like somehow they're doing something, right. you know, and, and if if you're on the receiving end of this accusation as a policeman, you're going to say, where does this come from, right? This guy must be, you know, yeah. uh, sort of... Yeah. Losing it, yeah. Yeah, so in that sense, I think we've already kind of arrived at a point where, at a very first point, it might seem like far-fetched and, and uh, like a stretch of the imagination to say, okay, but the old man doesn't even exist. But in a sense, it's, it's a very down-to-earth explanation that he's talking about madness, he's talking about being deceived, being hypersensitive, being deceived by his senses. And if you arrived, like you say, as a police in that situation and meeting those kind of accusations and allegations, uh, it would be perfectly plausible that the story would kind of play out play out in this way. Yeah. All right, good. So again, I mean, I think you're, you're suggesting like uh, this is a possible reading, but you're not just sort of saying, well, this is definitely better than the other one, uh, the, right. the more standard one. Right, yeah. So I, I don't know, you know, from our previous talk too, that you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Poe and Descartes and body-mind kinds of things, sort of an implicit dialogue you see between Descartes' meditations and... Post story, right? Yeah, right. Yes, I, yes. I would like like that, especially because I mean, sometimes when we read literature and or talk about narratives, we might characterize someone as a Cartesian subject, and 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 oftentimes when we say that, we just mean that that it's a self-reflecting consciousness. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think in the Telltale Heart, the closeness to uh, Descartes' uh, first and second med- meditation on first philosophy goes way beyond that kind of Cartesian yeah. subject in, in general that actually the first lines in Post Telltale Heart uh, completely emulates the first lines in, in Descartes' uh, meditations. And I, if you'll allow me, I'll just read out six, yeah, sure. eight lines from, sure. from Descartes. And also, of course, we can remember that what Descartes' meditation is all about is what can be cast into doubt, and especially how, how can senses deceive me. Right. So, so that's kind right. of Descartes' starting point, point of departure for what can be cast into doubt. And Descartes says, quote, Whatever I have up till now accepted as most true, I have acquired either from the senses or through the senses. But from time to time, I have found that the senses deceive and it's prudent never to trust completely those who have deceived us even once. But how could it be denied that these hands or this whole body are mine, unless perhaps I were to liken myself to madmen? But such people are insane, and I would be thought equally mad if I took anything from them as a model for myself. A brilliant piece of reasoning as if I were not a man who sleeps at night and regularly has all the same experiences while asleep as madmen do when awake. Indeed, sometimes even more improbable ones. How often asleep at night am I convinced of just such familiar events that I'm here in my dressing gown, sitting by the fire, when in fact I'm lying in bed? 
Yes, at this moment, my eyes are certainly wide awake. When I look at this piece of paper, I shake my head and it is not asleep. As I stretch out and feel my hand, I do so deliberately and I know what I'm doing. All this would not happen with such distinctness to someone asleep. Ha, indeed, as if I did not remember other occasions when I have been tricked by exactly similar thoughts while asleep. Yeah. End quote. And I think, at least for me, it was funny, but also fruitful to see that there seems to, for, to me to be a two-way traffic uh -huh. between post-text and Descartes. They are both monologues, but they also both include in those monologue dialogues, including dialogicity. And I think what Poe adds to my understanding of Descartes' text are, are two things. So first of all, it shows me for the first time how Descartes' text is actually really funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it also, it also shows me how Descartes splits himself into two Descartes. Like yeah. there's a, the rational Descartes who says, oh, but I am certainly aware that now I'm awake. Yeah. And then there's the ironical, undercutting Descartes, the cynical Descartes who says, ha, indeed, as if as if you don't remember other cases where you have been it, tricked by exactly the same thing. So yeah. it's a dialogue between a rational Descartes and a skeptical uh, Descartes. Yeah, yeah, very much. So, yeah. So I think that that's one thing that Poe kind of adds to, to my understanding of Descartes. And then he adds a kind of madness to Descartes' text. And also Descartes actually explicitly <laughs> compares himself to madmen. Yeah. And then he gives this very funny argument against doing so. So, <laughs> but, but, they, but they are insane, which, which is really funny. So I, I should not compare myself to madmen because they are insane. Same. Yeah, right. I think it's intentionally funny on, on Descartes' uh, part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so but, it's, but it's think, like as if Poe just took the ironical side, the skeptical side, and, you know, played it out, right? And we sort yeah. of left, left the rational side behind a little bit and, and yeah. imagined another interlocutor who's questioning his, his sanity, right? But, but, right? but from the, yeah, occupying the madness, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And then I think that also Descartes adds something to, to my understanding of, of, of Post text because Descartes then goes on to find famously one firm ground, one thing that right, cannot be, right. be cast into doubt. He doesn't, in the meditation of first philosophy, say cogito ergo sum. He says, I am, I exist. So, so not, I yeah. think, therefore I am. Yeah. Uh, which he says in another text. But, but, but even so, the, the point is the same uh, here in, in Descartes, that, that there's one thing that even if he's deceived by the senses, even if he's tricked by a demon, even if he's sleeping, yeah. <laughs> there's still someone being deceived, Seems, someone sleeping, right, someone. Right, right. And then Descartes famously builds everything up again from, from that, that point. Right. And I think what Poe does and what Descartes let me see about Poe that is that Poe pulls the rock from under that point and says, it's not even true or it doesn't even have to be true that we can find any firm ground in any kind of thinking self or subjectivity because, like he says, I wanted to rid myself of the eye forever. So, so yeah, it seems yeah. that, that the possibility of deception comes to even include that, that point of departure in the thinking subject. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think too. Also, if we go, there's another maybe dimension of this. If we go to the sort of ways in which we think about what Descartes, you know, the cogito or the I, I am, I exist. Or, this is the ground, and it's the consciousness of that, right? I, I'm aware that I exist, and then that that becomes sort of the basis for kind of a mind-body split, right? So, right. so you know, and the mind gets privileged and all that, right? But there's a way in which I think if we have a telltale heart and the, the beating of the heart sort of takes over everything here, it takes over the mind, right, the, the, the misperception of what the body is doing. Or if we say it's actually, 
you know, the character narrator's own heart that's beating so loud that Poe, in a way, you could read the story as Poe sort of running against the idea of a, of a mind-body split, right? We've, we've got the body and the mind are so uh, interconnected here, and we see it enacted in a way in this story. I, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a, that's a fantastic reading. Yeah, yeah. So, so it kind of questions the mind-body duality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's great. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we could talk a little bit, a few more of the kind of uh, narratological things. We've already talked a lot about. Well, we started to talk about the unreliability, and that's very much you know connected to what we've been saying about the senses, right? Can we trust mm. our eyes? Can we trust our ears, mm. and so on? But maybe we could say a little bit more about the kinds of unreliability that we have here, because I mean, if we go with the standard reading, right, then we would be focusing on accurately reporting most things. He's accurately reporting that he did. Mm you know, carefully calculate this and carry out this murder. But then, you know, the unreliability would be his interpreting of that and his evaluating of that and Mm. so on. But if we go with the idea that there's some kind of a suicide wish here, there is no old man, it's all about his relationship to himself, then it becomes Mm. even more radically sort of unreliable because there's no, you know, the reporting comes into question. Right. So I don't know if you want to you know, extend those thoughts at all, or no. I think uh, that that's very very accurate and very good good points. Yeah, exactly. Because one reading obviously is to say that so he wants to prove that he's not mad, but saying that carefully dismembering a corpse itself kind of attests to the unreliability of of that trying to to disprove of of madness. And and, and then Poe po clearly does that with him. Uh, but but Poe is very subtle and and and. And place with with many sorts of unreliability, and and like you said, another kind of unreliability would be if he actually accurately reports uh, about the events exactly in the way he perceives of them, yeah. like like exactly as he thinks things are, but that then as readers we have to construct as maybe the policeman <laughs> had right, to right. That, that, that how he perceives of the world is entirely <laughs> unreliable Liable. and and. and right. Uh, so, so that then two kinds of unreliability clashes with each other, and let's remember that this is a hundred years before, more than a hundred years before, anyone even talks about right. the possibility that a character narrator, when Booth comes along a uh, hundred years later, right. uh, so, so it's very, very subtle, subtly done by by Poe uh, to create multiple uh, kinds of unreliability. Uh, for, for readers to detect and, and discuss. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, I mean, if we're going to sort of keep going with the idea that Poe gives us multiple readings or certainly multiple options for plausible readings, then there's a way in which, anyway, if we think rhetorically, that somehow Poe's relationship to us, to his audience, <clears throat> becomes mm-hmm. sort of even more prominent, right? The, mm-hmm. In a way, the story, the character narration and so on becomes a kind of device uh, by which he can, you know, sort of take us through our our processing of the story and that, you know, in our relationship to him, all right, well, uh, what's Poe doing now? What is What does he want me to think as a result right. of this, you know? And that becomes another another way of sort of layering the thing, right? That's Right. So. I, I think that that is exactly right. And, and, and I think one of the things that entails is that, that the reader becomes, like, like in Descartes and in the meditations, the reader can kind of stay detached 
uh, from the questions of doubt and madness and, and kind of listen or read. But here the reader becomes kind of trapped, <laughs> trapped in madness. Yeah. And, and several things about the construction, I think, contributes to that. And one thing is the way Poe, not untypical at all for him, construct this frame narrative where the reader begins at a, at a distance to the events. But then in the end, we are trapped in the middle, in the middle of the mad events themselves. And we never we never come back to the frame. And I imagine if there yeah. was like a, a writer, writer's course or something, 1.0, it would say, you cannot do that. <laughs> you have to make sure you return to the frame. Yeah. But, but Poe, it seems, very intentionally traps the reader in this prison of madness right. in which the, the character writer himself is imprisoned. Right, um, right. And that connects, I think, to the point you were making before about the time, right, and how the time of the telling and the time of the told start to merge at the end. And as the character narrator reimmerses himself in that, that moment when he screams, uh, you know, villains, dissemble no more, and so on. And so as he's reimbursed and we're following, then we're there too. But then maybe we could take this, we take one more step and say, all right, well, you know, why is Poe doing that? Or what's the, what's the point, right? And right. Get, get back to a lot of the other things we were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah because I, I think another device like kind of engaging the reader or immersing the reader or trapping the reader in, in this meditation of, of madness is that, that the reader, him or herself, experiences sense deception. Because, because in a sense, homonyms are all about sense deceptions. Yes, so, right. so, so, so yeah. it's about one sense, the, the, the sense of hearing telling you one thing, and then another sense telling you, oh, but it's ambiguous or it, it could be, be several different things. And and the first homonym we, we talked about was about the visual sense that of, that of mm. seeing connected connected to the eye. Yeah. And I think that it's not a coincidence that towards the end we, we seem to find a, another homonym connected exactly to, to the second of the two senses in, involved in homonyms, going from that of seeing to that of hearing. Right. Because it seems like in the end when, when the character narrator screams, dissemble mm. no more, tear off the planks, here, here, yeah. and, and obviously in story, it's H-E-R-E, H-E-R-E. Yeah. Then it seems to, to me that if we go the other way round from, from seeing to hearing, yeah. then we could very easily hear those words as what, what they scream to us, H-E-A-R, right. here, here. So listen, right. listen to this. So if that is the case, that, that that's something we cannot find by looking at it, by using our visual perception, uh -huh. but we can kind of get at by going beyond that sense decision and, and listening to it and, and, and hearing to it, hearing the telltale heart telling, yes. then we are ourselves not at all detached from sense deception, but right in the middle of it in, in yeah. the end of the story. So, so it seems to me that we're trapped partly because we never return to the frame and partly because we, we are part of that sense deception involved in the two homonyms concerning respectively seeing and, and hearing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, great. And maybe just one more wrinkle on that is the way in which there's a kind of, you know, the play with voice, right? So we have the character narrator, you know, sp speaking and describing external events, or defending mm -hmm. himself from being mad and so on, right? And so we have kind of the voice of the narrator. But then as mm -hmm. he goes and he's reimmersing himself in the events, he starts to, to tell us what he's thinking. We have a kind of access to an internal voice, right? And, and then at the very end, we have, in the reimmersion, we have his speaking voice, 
emerging, and and that's where we get the here here, right? Right. So that that kind of you know, we, following all the voices, and then the, sort of the the eruption in this you know right. spontaneous overflow of powerful confession or whatever we would right. we would call right. it. Given everything he's doing with with the sense of hearing, right? That play mm-hmm. of voices also seems like a, a great element of of the way he's bringing things to this climax. I think that that's a fantastic point. And I think it fits really well with like almost everything else we've said. Because if you're right, and I think you definitely are about that, then it also means that at that point, at the end, finally, the reader is the interlocutor. Because for the first time, we hear his direct voice speaking to us. So again, we're kind of trapped into that situation. So I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, good. All right. Well, I think we're we're coming to the end, but one thing I know that we're both interested in and we haven't explicitly uh, discussed, which is the, the fictionality here, right? So, right. you know, this is generic fiction, a short story, and Poe, you know, one of the famous early practitioners of it and so on. So mm-hmm. what does, you know, thinking about fictionality do for the story or for what we've been saying about it? What are your mm-hmm. thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I think you can you can talk about fictionality on, on on two levels, even even if just briefly on yeah. both levels. So one level is that that in a sense we 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 know as readers that that what we encounter here is fiction, and that allows us to take pleasure in uh-huh. in something that would be horrific in in, in real life. Okay, right. Yeah, uh, and yeah. that that's quite fundamental, and maybe not maybe not very subtle, but 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 even so, yeah. it's it's a uh, it's, yeah. it's part of part of the experience, yeah. and I think actually quite profound, right? I mean that right. that we're we're in this zone where we are we're mm. licensed for the exploration right. of the horror and so on, and we we right. don't have to worry about direct, uh, you know, real world uh, consequences. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right, but, uh, but and, and following up on that, I think a lot of the pleasure, at least I take in the text. I think many many people take in the text is you distinguish between components like the thematic and the mimetic and the synthetic component, the synthetic having to do with the constructedness of the narrative. And and I think a great pleasure for me is to to enjoy also the synthetic component of the text and and how Poe very subtly, very creatively plays with framing, unreliability, construction, voices, time, uh, all within a, a page span of like four pages. Right, right. Uh, so there's this kind of aesthetic dimension to a fiction that we, you know, that is part of the pleasure. And even if the, you know, things being depicted are unpleasant or horrific, yeah. Right. right yeah. And, and then the second level I, I want to really briefly mention about fictionality is that if there's anything to the reading, I suggest being yeah. possible that, that it's, it's not really profoundly ab- about a homicide. Yeah. But, but, but more about a, a madman being deceived by his senses and kind of swallowed up by madness, then then one could ask why why hasn't any previous readings focused mm-hmm. on that? Because it seems to me that so many details point us in that direction yeah. as, as at least one possible direction. Yeah. And I think fictionality plays in on another level because we have been so used to up until recently as narrative theorists to kind of assume that real world conditions yeah. would apply also to fictional narratives. And obviously, if this was a real police report, yeah. we, we couldn't kind of make that reading. So that reading or the possibility of that reading hinges on acknowledging uh, fictionality as the all-encompassing framework and, yeah. and rhetoric uh, of the narrative itself. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, 
that could be a good note to end on, but uh, are there, is there anything else that you were hoping we'd get to that we didn't? Maybe just one, one final sentence I, I want to mention is that again and again, like I said, the eye is referred to, to in the singular. And also it, it, it's mentioned that he had the eye of a vulture. And that, that is one of the sentences which Griswold changes completely. So, so in Griswold's version, that sentence is changed to one of his eyes in the plural, one of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. So it's mm. made into a comparison instead. So just one final meditation on what it means to say that he had the eye of a vulture where I cannot help but thinking that that any reader of fiction will think, so what does it mean to be looked upon by the eye of a vulture? And we would know that the vulture in fiction is a creature who looks upon the dead or the dying or the right, corpses. Right, right. So, so already saying that I'm looking into the eye of a vulture yeah. entails a feeling of being yourself already either dead, dead or dying. Uh, uh, on the way, right. Yeah. Or, or almost the corpse. So I think that that kind of, you could say that the eye of the vulture is the mirror of the dead, and, and, and that that is what, what, what the character narrator conveys, but also what the reader faces, that we, we cannot in this narrative stay kind of detached, uh, uh, but, 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 but we are ourselves looking in the mirror of the dead and, and thus kind of being uh, swallowed up within a frame of, of madness and, and, and death. And, and I think Poe does that extremely e efficiently and, and subtly. Yeah, right. I like the way that you do that because it does, takes us back again to Poe and his sensibility and you know what it's like to be reading Poe and, and right, give, giving right. ourselves over to him. All right, well, great. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Henrik. This was a lot of fun and uh, I think uh, our listeners will enjoy it. So I also want to thank our listeners and say we're happy to get feedback, which you can send to us uh, on email, projectnarrative, one word, at osu.edu. Or you can post messages to our Facebook page or to our Twitter account, which is at PN Ohio State. I also want to say you can find more than 20 additional episodes of the podcast on the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>